Welcome to Work Chatter by East Cascades Works. We connect talent to opportunity. Here, employers and the 10 counties we serve will learn what resources are available to support their growth. Job seekers will discover the plethora of support available to them as they reach their goals. So let's get to work because now is all we have. Josh Lehner, economist with the Office of Economic Analysis. We do the economic and revenue forecasting for the state. And today I'm here to share a little bit about um, our current our current beliefs or outlook for, for the economy. We'll touch on some, some big picture stuff of what's going on in, in you know, risk of recession or something like that and some labor market uh, conditions as well before I pass it over to Damon. He'll do all labor market or well focus more on the labor market and the local stuff. Uh, we are a statewide office in our shop. Um, so I thought I would start today with just some high level, not that you don't know this is going on, but just some of the, the what does it mean and what is the Federal Reserve doing about it um, or trying to do about it and what's the future state of the economy look like is simply, you know, we have really, really fast inflation today. It's running close to 9% by the Consumer Price Index, which is the one most of people are familiar with. It's not technically the price index that the Federal Reserve targets, but it doesn't matter. Uh, it's running at 9% and they have a 2% target. That's You can do the math. That's quite, quite high. Um, and the big thing is, is, is Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell right now, he says it every month, um, you know, price stability is the bedrock of the economy. We want a long economic expansion. We want job growth. We want to see increases in well-being. We want to see all these sort of things that we care about. You need price stability to ensure continued economic expansion. And right now, we don't have that. Uh, there's real impacts associated with inflation. Um, we see inflation-adjusted wage declines, inflation-adjusted income declines. That means even if you got a nice 5 6 7% wage hike, wage increase from your employer, or you're giving those to your employees, uh, when inflation is running at 9%, you need to see a 10% wage increase to see your standard of living actually increase. And so while we're seeing strong wage gains somewhere in that 6-7% range in the state of Oregon, on average, uh, we're seeing inflation-adjusted wage declines. So all of the average worker is seeing their standard of living fall in the last 18 months. Uh, so that's a problem. People don't like that. Uh, it's not good. And it leads to what economists call demand destruction where the price of things get too high and we stop buying, or at least we stop buying as much. We don't stop buying entirely, but we'll just slow down those purchases. And if we're going to buy fewer items because they cost too much, that means businesses need to produce fewer things. That means they have to have fewer workers to produce those fewer units or provide those fewer services and all that sort of stuff. And we get into a negative, we can get into a negative recessionary um, dynamic. So who does inflation hurt? Well, it impacts every single one of us. Every single one of us buys something, so it hurts us, uh, especially when our income's not growing as quickly. That said, it impacts our lowest income neighbors and family and friends the greatest degree because they live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, when you're spending 100% of your income every single month or every single two-week period, uh, that means the inflation is hitting every single dollar you earn or you spend. Um, so therefore, they're impacted the most. Middle income households are impacted uh, a lot today, more than they traditionally would be, in large part because so much of what's happened, certainly in the last six months, um, has been the oil shock and the big run up in transportation costs. Both used car prices are up 50 percent. And then we have um, um, the oil shock and the prices at the pump being so high in the last handful of months. Uh, and middle income households are the Part of the distribution that spend the largest share of their budget on gas. Uh, and so therefore, they're impacted quite a bit for that reason alone. 
And then high income households, they spend a lot of money um, and, and they're impacted by the increases in cost, but high income households save, right? So if you're, you know, you're, they're able to save some portion of their paycheck. And so if they're only spending 80 or 90% of their paycheck every month and they're saving that 10 or 20%, technically that means the inflation's only hitting that 80 or 90% that they're spending. And so that savings makes them a little bit more isolated. And of course, higher income households generally have higher levels of wealth and that sort of stuff. And they're better able to spend and, and, and meet their needs um, using other financial resources other than just their paycheck, the paycheck nature of their lives. So what's the outlook here? The outlook here is honestly, from here, we should see headline inflation decline. Uh, with the big drop in gas prices and oil prices we've seen in the last month, um, and 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 some increase some improvements in supply chains, we got logistics and freight uh, prices are declining. Commodities more broadly are declining. Over the next handful of months, we're going to see some decline, some some strong deceleration in the headline inflation. The problem is we're not going to go back to two percent anytime soon, most likely, at least in that underlying core. Uh, rate of inflation, kind of that underlying core services, that blue portion of the bar, um, you know, that's running in the 3% range today. And if you have a 2% target and this kind of sticky stuff and housing's included in there and the rental increases and all these sort of things uh, and the cost of going out to eat and some of these other things that are embedded within that, it's going to be hard to get back to 2% anytime soon. So what is the Federal Reserve going to do about it? Um, they're raising rates. Uh, today, they raised interest rates another 75 basis points, uh, 0.75 percentage points. And so the Fed funds rate went from 0% at the start of the year or the end of last year, 0% to a range of 2.25 to 2.5% today. Um, so that's a big increase, a two percentage point, more than two percentage point increase over a seven month period is a very, very big increase. And that's largely because they're so far behind the curve on raising rates to cool the economy that they're trying to get there as fast as possible without breaking the economy. Uh, I'd say so far so good, to be honest, uh, with, with the shock that we're seeing on the inflation side of things and the big run up in interest rates. Like So far, I think things are going relatively okay on this regard, um, but it's a big challenge. Um, what's Who's impacted by, by higher interest rates? Um, credit sensitive sectors like automobiles and housing. We've certainly seen the housing market cool dramatically in the last 60 days. Um, it's not broken. It's just cool dramatically. Um, automobile, you know, it's getting more expensive. We're going to see demand slow there. As a result, we're going to see slower demand for personal loans. We're going to see slower demand for business loans, for, for growing operations and expanding. All these things that take, you know, big, big ticket purchases or long-term investments, the things that cost more when interest rates are up, we're going to see all those slow down as a result. And we need that, right? We need things to cool in the economy to get inflation back down to the 2% range or so. Uh, and then of course, there's the indirect effect of the big run up in interest rates. Really, they didn't just take the wind out of the stock market. They just plunged. They punched a hole in the sales of the stock market and it's down you know, 20% this year um, relative to very, very, very elevated levels at the end of 2021. I don't think the stock market's in a problem. It's just, if you're measuring from the end of 2021, which was such an inflated value, it's a huge decline. Longer term, as a you know, roughly in trends with economic growth, like the stock market is looking better value today than it certainly was six or 12, six or 12 months ago. But that is another impact of these higher interest rates. The challenge here is, is the Federal Reserve has a very blunt instrument of changing short term interest rates to fine tune a global economy. That's a really hard thing to do. Um, there is a path here to achieve their outcomes without driving us into a recession. Although this, today, just now, you know, Federal 
Reserve Chairman Powell, he was saying that path has narrowed. Certainly since the invasion of Ukraine um, with the oil shock and the like, the path to this is narrow. Uh, it's going to be hard to thread the needle. It's possible. But in the event that they don't, if they're not able to do that, um, you know, what is going to happen in the economy? We'll have some sort of boom bust cycle, right, where we have this really fast growth for the last two years since we reopened the economy and got this really tight labor market and fast wage gains, fast income growth, all these sort of things that we care about um, is going to kind of come crashing down a little bit, uh, probably next year. We're not in a recession today. I know that's a thing people are worried about. We're going to get a negative GDP report in the morning, most likely not in recession. Uh, recession is a broad-based decline in economic activity, and we're not there yet. Um, the declines in GDP are more for some idiosyncratic reasons um, than, than fundamentally things are broken, although they might get fundamentally broken next year. Um, we, we shall see. So in our office, we have switched. We used to do some alternative scenarios. Like, so if our baseline belief of the economy doesn't actually come out like we think it will, what kind of world would we think might actually take its place instead? And so for the last year, we've been doing this boom-bust cycle where the inflation doesn't slow down enough. The Federal Reserve has to raise interest rates even higher um, than they think they're going to have to raise them to really cool the economy, and that'll send us into recession. What does that world potentially look like? Uh, and in Oregon, we're looking at a mild to moderate recession. Um, I think the key question here would be if we come to that, if we see that happen, um, is, is the labor market really tight? The labor market's structurally tight. I don't think businesses really want to lay off workers because it's been so hard to find them coming out of the, the pandemic. Uh, so we could see some more mild job losses, certainly relative to the COVID layoffs and certainly relative to the great financial crisis. Whether we get more 1991 or 1990 or 2001 style recession, we'll see. Depends upon the exact dynamics as, as we come along. Um, but something more moderate than what we've become accustomed to the last couple of cycles, which were so severe. We're not expecting anything so severe. The only thing that would make it a super severe cycle would be is if this 9% inflation is truly entrenched in the economy, like it was in the late 1970s, right? Where, where you had double-digit inflation for the better part of a decade, and then they really had to hammer the economy to kind of wring out the inflation. I don't think 9% inflation is embedded in the economy today. It's something more like 3 or 4% kind of embedded, probably. Um, but I don't think 9% is. Uh, and so, therefore, that would also point to something more moderate in terms of the recession needed to really tamp down consumer spending and business investment to bring inflation back to the Federal Reserve's target. Uh, what does that look like for income? So kind of moderate job losses expected. Income is not so much a plunge in, in household income and in consumer spending, but more of a leveling off. You can see here the dotted light blue line. This is total income in Oregon in our alternative scenario. It just kind of stagnates for 18 months or six or seven quarters. So it's kind of like just a leveling off. Uh, which is a decline relative to the baseline. You would expect your business sales to grow. You expect things to continue to increase, and instead they kind of stagnate, uh, which which is another which is a problem. You have to manage around that. It's a, it's a deep, it's a big deal, uh, but it's different. Again, the nature of this cycle in every way is different. So we think the next recession is going to be different than what we've seen um, in in recent decades. Um, on, when it comes to that labor in the in the state of the economy, there's some good news and some bad news. The gr well, great news is. The workers have fully returned, right? Uh, employment in Oregon has never been larger today. All the concerns about fears of the virus or the lack of in-person schooling or the, the impact of the enhanced unemployment insurance benefits or any of that sort of stuff 
um, can be put to the wayside at this point. They're, they're not impacting the economy today, or, the, or they're no longer a direct cause of anything that's going on today. Those are all in the rearview mirror. We can talk about those what those impacts were, but they're not an impact today. Um, the hard thing here is that businesses might not have noticed. Uh, we still have record job openings or essentially record job openings in the economy. Uh, and the, I get questions everywhere. I'm sure Damon does too. Everywhere we go, you guys at the workforce board, um, you know, where are the workers? Where are the workers? When are they going to come back? They're already back. We're at a historic all-time high for employment. This goes for all different sorts of, of race and ethnicities, uh, gender. It goes for different age cohorts, and it goes for different educational attainment cohorts as well, right? Every single thing is back. Uh, and so, therefore, um, that's great. That's great that everybody, we don't have a lot of permanent scarring associated with COVID from an economic or labor market perspective. That's tremendous. It took us a decade last time to get out of the recession. This one took us two years, which is really, really fast recovery. The problem here is uh, labor is not going to get better. We have some structural problems or structural challenges that mean labor is going to be hard to come by for the next decade. The biggest one is demographics with the retiring, the ongoing retirements of the baby boomers that started maybe five years ago and going to last for another decade or so. We just have a large outflow of very skilled, very experienced workers in the economy. And it's hard to replace such workers. You lose productivity. You hire a new worker. You try and train people up, shift them up the ladder. Everyone takes a step up into a higher higher position of responsibility. And, 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 and you can get there. You get your productivity back eventually, but it's an adjustment period and it takes time. Um, and then we have, I'll talk more about population growth and migration in a minute, but there's inflows into, we know the outflows of retirements are big and are going to continue to be big for the next decade. The inflows are more of a steady stream or they're not, we're not seeing a big increase in young people entering the labor market because A, we've had a declining birth rate for 20 years. So the cohort is smaller and in B, migration has slowed or it's certainly in Oregon, central Oregon, maybe a little less so, but certainly Oregon more broadly migration flows have slowed. And so we're expecting that to get better in 22 and 23 and 24, but it's still slower than what we saw in the past couple of cycles. So the, that influx of new workers will be, it's not going to decline. It's just going to be less of an increase than maybe we've been seeing in, in expansions past. So we have a lot more outflows and then the inflows are kind of pretty decent, certainly for comparison to some of the Midwestern states, we have tremendous inflows, but um, relative to Oregon historically, maybe maybe less so. Josh, um, I just issued a, a new second? report, so I thought I'd bring it up. I know it's one of your guys's. Josh, can you pause for one second? Yes. There's a question in the chat. Oh. Are there particular sectors that will get hit harder than others in Oregon? Um, in in a recession. Is that what we're talking about? Bob, did you want to clarify at all? I think you asked that a minute ago, so I'm not sure. Yeah, you. Uh, I think it was on the previous slide. You were talking about um, the recession and what it could look like in Oregon, mid to mild. Um, I think is what you said, or mild to mid. Um, and I was curious. Are you know? Are you seeing? And you're talking about job loss. And are you seeing particular sectors that are more at risk than others? You know, like the service industry is always kind of vulnerable. Um, you know, I don't know, manufacturing, um, construction, yeah, so, you know, just rattling off, you know, different agencies or sectors. Sure. I So I think especially given the dynamics of this cycle where we have a run up in interest rates to, to cool the economy and that's starting to tap out households a little bit. Um, not yet. Household finances across the board are still strong. We had the CEO of Visa yesterday say that 
that um, lower income people with credit cards, you know, their credit card usage still is robust or something like that. They haven't seen any weakening or it's more persistent. I think she used the word persistent, right? Um, so, so we haven't seen that really weaken as much as you would think with 9% inflation. Um, but, but so it goes back to the sector. So, so given the dynamics we're seeing with high inflation starting to eat into household budgets and the run-up in interest rates eating into budgets, um, I think our goods producers are more vulnerable um, than they have been the last couple of cycles, which is a little hard to believe. Um, but it's kind of the traditional thing you see in historical recession, something we haven't seen in a while. Um, so I think manufacturing, I think uh, construction, certainly already construction is already vulnerable on the residential side with the run up in mortgage rates. But but as people put off their RV purchases, they put off their computer purchases, their washing machine purchases, that sort of stuff. Um, and the reason why they're more boom bust over the business cycle is because you don't need a new computer tomorrow or most of us don't. Even if we want one, we don't necessarily need it. And so if we're a little worried about our job prospects, we're a little worried about our budget because we have to spend more at the grocery store now, you know, we can delay that purchase a year or two or three, like you know, a lot of times with these big ticket durable good purchases. Um, unless of course something breaks, then then you do have to replace it. But just just for replacement cycles for what you want um, is, is a little bit different. So I think I think given the interest rate environment and if we had a recession, we would see our manufacturing industries take a step back. Um, uh, construction would be vulnerable. Those would be the big ones. Uh, the services, I guess it depends upon what exactly um, we're, we're talking about. Maybe if you're more of a, uh, if, you're, if you're catering to the higher end car, uh, you know, clientele, maybe less so, but if you're at the bottom end, maybe, maybe more so. Um, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying to think um, what, what else, a lot of other things are kind of on autopilot. Uh, we might see some slowdown in healthcare or something like that from a hiring perspective, but a, the ongoing demand and need would still be there with an aging and growing population. Um, hope that was a start of an answer. Um, Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, of course. Um, just because again, this was I know this was on your target industry list. Um, I didn't bring all the slides, but put out a new report talking about uh, high tech employment in Oregon, the industry more broadly. Uh, it's a little more Portland focused because uh, over seventy percent of the high tech jobs in Oregon are in Portland, right? Um, it's a very large urban concentration when it comes to the to the industry. Um, but it's been growing. It's growing quickly in Bend, in Deschutes County. This has been Metropolitan Statistical Area, which is Deschutes County. Um, it's doubled. The number of these software occupations has more than doubled in the last 15 years. Um, as a share of the local regional economy, it's about average. It's kind of, You see the red line kind of bouncing around um, the median metropolitan area in the entire country out of the 370 some odd metro areas in the country that we have this data for. Um, Bend is right there in the middle of the pack. Really, really fast growth. But of course, Bend is seeing really, really fast growth across every everything given the given the the desirability and the population numbers and all that all that sort of stuff so it's strong tremendous growth um this includes remote workers it's not just local it's local payroll jobs it's remote workers and it's the self-employed as well that's all combined within this within this um statistic and you'd expect this to continue to grow in the years ahead given given increased remote opportunities to work and given the ongoing uh, importance of software and related skills in the economy as we continue to evolve um, in the decades in the decades ahead. Uh, I touched on this a second ago when it comes to the 
the labor market, but it's really the entire economy. This transition we're seeing at the at, from a demographic perspective has profound economic impacts where we have the very large baby boomer cohort is retiring, entering into the retirement years. And a lot of time and you earn less in retirement than you do in your prime peak working and earning years. And so there's going to be a little bit of a slowdown there from a consumer spending perspective. Of course, um, have more free time, going to see increase in volunteer activity, all these other sort of things that are going to help society. Um, but we're going to see a, a, a drop off in some of the productivity and the labor force numbers from the, the big baby boomer retirements. Uh, and millennials are now the largest generation in, in the U.S. and in, in Oregon and barely in Central Oregon. Um, the millennial cohort is no longer the kids. The kids these days are the Gen Zers. They're no longer millennials. Millennials are entirely in their 30s or their 20s and their 30s and increasingly into their 40s. By the end of this decade, millennials will be entirely 30-somethings and 40-somethings. So they're middle-aged. Millennials are middle-aged now. They're becoming the major economic powerhouse in terms of their life cycle of where they're where they're getting to be established in their careers and starting to get some of those those wage gains and will start to hit their their peak earning years later on at the end of the decade. And that's going to be a really big driving force for a lot of things um, in in the economy in not just the 10 years ahead, but the 20 years ahead. Um, now, you'll also notice, take a look at the left hand side of the of the chart. Um, Gen Z is very, very small. Um, it's not that kids aren't growing in Central Oregon. Obviously, the, the enrollment numbers for the Ben Lapine School District are better than the enrollment numbers and growth in pretty much every other single district in, in the state because of the overall population growth. But with the really big decline in birth rates um, and the millennials moving in over the last 20 years, um, Gen Z is a smaller generation. It isn't nationally, but it is in Oregon. Uh, now, looking forward, the key here will be Oregon needs to remain an attractive place to live and work for the future generations, the Gen Zs or the Alpha Gens that come after them or whatever they end up being called, um, just like they have been for the baby boomers in the 1970s and then the millennials in the 2000s, right? So we need, it, the, we need that Gen Z population that's more Southern, more um, you know, Southwestern and Southeastern in the United States where the Gen Z is a larger generation. We need them to follow the Oregon Trail to Oregon, just like every other generation before them has done in order to grow our economy at an above average rate. If they don't, if they choose not to come here, then all of our forecasts need to be lowered, whether it's population, um, whether it's housing, whether it's jobs, whether it's labor force availability, whether it's income, whether it's business sales, taxes paid to local governments, all of those sort of things will be lower because our Gen Z population is relatively small. So we need the Oregon Trail to continue to work like it has traditionally to see faster growth in Oregon than we see faster growth in the United States. And the biggest one here um, would be would be housing, would be a good reason why people wouldn't move here is our affordability gets so bad. We've underbuilt housing in the state of Oregon by about five years. So if we walled off Oregon and said nobody could come or go, um, and we built the normal amount of housing in the state that we have been doing five years from now, so in 2027, we would have made up for our housing deficit. That's how big it is. It's a really big number. In Deschutes County, it's a little bit better. It's more like 5,000 units, which is maybe closer to three years of underproduction as opposed to the five years of underproduction statewide. Um, the really bad places are places like Eugene. Um, you think the people complaining about the townhomes on Aubrey Butte are bad? Well, that's basically the whole city of Eugene, um, where they're 10 years behind on new home construction. Uh, and so there's a lot of big deficit to be made up for over over there is one of the largest deficits in, in the entire state. And so overall, you know, we need to increase our housing production to have a place to house people. 
And then the affordability component is then you have more money to be left over to go out to eat, to put food on the table, um, to put clothes on the backs of your kids as they go to school, uh, and to invest in, in other opportunities and, and things like that. And so when housing gets too expensive, it's not so much that people pack up and move out. We see some of that, right? That's some of what's going on. And I think that's, to be honest, that's some of the growth. Um, the Bend, Bend's housing crisis has pushed people to Redmond and Prineville and the Pine to a greater degree than maybe they did 10, 20 years ago. Um, but I think it's not just that impact. It's also an initial repellent. If you're a kid coming from Denver, Salt Lake City, California, wherever it is, and you're looking, where am I going to set down my roots? Where do I want to go chase a job, you know, start my life and all that sort of stuff? You start to look at like, what's my salary going to be and what is it going to cost to live there? And, and so when your affordability gets so bad, it's, you don't even choose to go to Oregon in the first place and then figure out you can't make it work and then you move away. It's like, well, maybe I'm going to go to Tucson. Maybe I'm going to go to Provo or Spokane or Boise, some of these other places that have better relative affordability and still a lot of outdoor scenic activity and nice places and they're growing and all that sort of stuff. You're going to choose to go there at your initial step and not even come to Oregon in the first place. That's the real risk, at least so far in the data from the, the housing affordability um, problem. And then, of course, the recent run up in housing prices um, have made some of that housing affordability, certainly on the ownership side, even worse, uh, where right now, given mortgage rates uh, are you know, a few percentage points higher than they were at the start of the year, only about one in 10 households in Deschutes County can actually afford to buy the typical priced home today. Right. That's a huge that's a huge problem uh, where. And, and so what does that do? One of the knock on effects there. Is it forces everybody into the rental market. If you're, or if you're on the fence, you're like, I'm, I'm renting, I've been saving up for down payment, I, you know, whatever, I'm going to get married, we're going to have a kid, we need a yard and all that sort of stuff, but I can no longer afford to do that. You're going to stay living in your apartment uh, and, and that's going to increase the demand for rental properties, which is great if you're a landlord, um, but it's not necessarily going to be good for the wallet as those rent prices will continue to increase because we're starting to lock more people out of the, the housing market with the higher mortgage rates. Now, I don't think housing's broken. I think everything's going to work out okay over the course of the next couple of years. But this rate shock has been so fast, so dramatic in the last six months um, that it's it's kind of sent this ripple effect that the the market's still dealing with, uh, and it's going to be a number of months before everything gets back back on their feet again. And so that's it. Well, As do you happen to know off the market. top of your head, um, Klamath Falls and maybe in Wasco County, kind of where they fall on the could could Medford be a proxy for Klamath Falls? Because they haven't updated their housing stock forever. Like they're so behind. Um, that, that that's right. I do think uh, Klamath Klamath is decent. It's still worse. So here's the other thing: is every single county in Oregon is worse than the typical county in the nation for housing affordability. Whether you're okay, looking at so ownership, Oregon uh, writ large. Yeah, every single every single county is worse than the national average or the national median. Um, Lakeview, Lake County has a large vacancy rate because there's a lot of older homes that have been fallen into disrepair for a long time. And, and so therefore that makes some of those numbers look better, but it's not necessarily that you'd want to live in some of those some of those older um, some of those those older homes. Yeah, I will say the only thing I needs down there. A lot of I'm retrofitting sorry. needs and yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yep. So that's it. Uh, here's my contact information. I'm always happy to chat. Uh, if you're interested in anything you just saw, you can follow along online on our website or on our Twitter account. Uh, I'll post and stuff about once once a week or so. And so 
Um, with that, I'll turn it over to Damon. Does anybody have questions though for Josh before he pops off? That was a lot of information. There's good news and scary news, so thank you. Damon, tell us something nice. Oh man, I have so much good news. No, it's been, um, I've been somehow making light of bad news. Um, uh, and people have been leaving talks I've been giving with smiles on their faces. And I'm like, good, I, I totally tricked you into thinking that that was good, even though I just said a lot of bad stuff. So hopefully we'll all do the same stuff here. I don't think it's actually bad news I'm going to be to share. There's a lot of great stuff that's going on. Um, I appreciate Josh giving that sort of big, broader overview. It saves me having to talk about things like inflation, uh, which is uh, most of the bad news that's going on these days. And I get to talk about um, how great our labor market looks, um, at least if you're a worker in today's market. Uh, let's see here. Let's share the old screen for y'all because we have to have slides. That's how us economists work. You're going to be tired of seeing graphs after both having Josh and I back to back. Um, as a reminder, for those, I, mean, I've, I know most of you, um, a lot of familiar faces in this meeting, but um, for those that don't know me, my name is Damon Runberg. I am a, a regional economist with the Oregon Employment Department, and I cover your exact um, uh, EC Works territory of the 10-county region from the Columbia Gorge down through Central Oregon and Klamath and Lake. So um, uh, I align perfectly with your alignment. And so because of that, um, I have some great data to sort of give an update on what the employment and labor landscape looks like today. Uh, Long-term vision of, of how employment trends have looked across the, the three broad areas of, of the East Cascades. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. Um, it, it's actually really difficult to talk about because each of the three subregions have their own distinct trends. Uh, there's not like one consistent pattern that we see there. Um, here, going back to 2001, so you know the last 20 or so years, um, you can see Central Oregon is this top line here, super volatile, huge run-up in employment in the in the early 2000s, uh, significantly impacted by the Great Recession. Um, and then a our last expansion was the longest we had ever seen and also just the strongest um, uh, growth rate we had seen in an expansion in Central Rim's history. You could see COVID uh, is the crazy uh, V there that we have at the end of the graph. And um, when all is said and done, Central Oregon sitting with employment levels up nearly 60% in the last 20 years. Um, one of the fastest growing economies in the nation when you look at metropolitan areas, uh, just phenomenal, uh, crazy growth. You drop down and then we got this sort of, uh, the next narrative is, is uh, Columbia Gorge uh, County. So, you know, Wasco, uh, Wheeler, Sherman, Gillum, uh, Hood River uh, have, for the most part, really followed the state trend over the last 20 years. The one exception is there wasn't really much impact from the recession in the Columbia, uh, the, the Great Recession uh, in 2008. So besides that uh, sort of a glancing blow that they saw there has really followed closely with the broader statewide trends that we see, not to say that it's uh, the region is sort of representative of the state as far as industry composition or employment or anything like that, but the, the broad uh, picture has, has looked similar. Um, I'll get into this in a second, but uh, the uh, Hood River was the, the most impacted county from COVID-related job losses. Um, Deschutes County was not far behind. So um, our broad East Cascades region had some of the most impacted communities from COVID losses. We also had some of the least impacted communities, which is a bit of another confusing uh, trend that we see in our area. Uh, and then the yellow line at the bottom there, you can, you can see is, is uh, the Klamath and Lake region combined. And, uh, and, you know, has very much stayed um, 
you know, very little change since 2001. Uh, there's been some ups and some downs, uh, some significant losses, especially in wood products in the manufacturing sector there after the, the Great Recession in 2008, um, was almost recovered, for, uh, you know, back to 2001 levels by the time the, the pandemic hit. And, uh, um, and now just still almost back uh, to where they were before the pandemic. So uh, very interesting to see sort of these, you know, really, you know, these divergent trends amongst uh, amongst the three regions that we have uh, in East Cascades. It makes your guys' job very difficult, I think, because it's not a one size fits all solution to any of the problems that you might be addressing. So if we zoom in specifically on the impacts we see from COVID, um, I have all the counties on here, all 10 counties. The red is the percent job losses uh, that we saw, the initial job losses from COVID relative to the pre-pandemic peak. And then the blue represents where employment is as of June, as of um, last month, uh, uh, relative to that pre-pandemic peak. And so you can see there at the bottom, Hood River County lost you know, nearly 24% of all non-farm jobs. I mean, that's wild, you know, almost one in four. Uh, Deschutes County, not far behind, around 18%, which was, you know, nearly one in five. Um, and you can see then there's Oregon. Uh, every county outside of, of Deschutes and Hood River were uh, was impacted uh, to less severely than the state average. That really has a lot to do with the fact that Portland was, was really hard hit. Um, and, uh, and a lot of rural communities uh, saw more of a glancing blow. The reason why uh, Bend and Hood River were, uh, were saw such significant job losses was a higher concentration of employment and leisure and hospitality in those two communities. And obviously when you know restaurants, hotels, tourism amenities sort of shut down, uh, it really impacted those communities in particular. So that's why those were um, more hard hit. Uh, the good news, though, is you can see with those blue bars, there's been some really significant recovery uh, at this point. Um, one of these looks like an elephant in the room here that you might be like, what in the heck is going on there, which is Crook County. Uh, employment levels as of June were up 10% above the pre-pandemic level. So they lost 10% of their employment early on, and now they're up over 10%. Just bananas, uh, the, the growth we've seen out there. Um, a lot of that has to do with, uh, is related to the data centers. Um, and this is uh, continued construction of the data centers, uh, consultants that are out there, electrical co uh, construction uh, companies that are doing work, um, as well as the, the actual data centers themselves employ people. So you put all that together and that's been driving most of that growth there. There has also been some gains in manufacturing in Kirk County. So um, just, just an anomaly <laughs> across the state to see the trend we've seen in Kirk County. Um, our elephant in the room, you know, our, our biggest um, uh, local economy is sort of the Bend, Redmond, MSA, Deschutes County, um, fully recovered from the pandemic shock, employment now up about a percent from what it was uh, pre-pandemic, so fully recovered there. Um, and Jefferson County and Central Oregon just recovered last month, so all three Central Oregon counties have fully recovered from the pandemic, whereas no other county uh, outside of Gillum is above pre-pandemic levels in the East Cascades area, um, although most of them aren't far behind. What's happening in Gillum? Did a business land there or something? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, one farm opened. I, I don't know. It's, it's so small. The numbers are, uh, you could even see like, you know, employment only being down 1% from the, they didn't even have a COVID shock. So um, it's one of the smallest, if not the smallest employment county in the state. So um, I don't put too much stock in our monthly employment numbers there. Um, Dallas, don't tell Dallas I said that though. <laughs> okay, we won't. And then there's a question in the chat from Martine. Is there a more specific sector loss for Hood River County? 
So what, why is that one not fully recovered? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's mostly the leisure and hospitality piece there for sure. Um, and that hasn't, uh, in, in Deschutes County's case too, leisure and hospitality remains down, hasn't fully recovered. Um, it's even further down in Hood River. Uh, the difference is that Deschutes uh, continue to see pretty strong job growth in other industries that sort of compensated for leisure being down still. And Hood River hasn't seen that robust of growth as, as Bend has seen in, in those other sectors. For instance, uh, construction has grown really quickly in Deschutes County. Uh, so is manufacturing. Uh, those are the two big ones that have sort of made up the ground there, whereas Hood Rivers has seen other industries growing, just not as much to compensate for those losses. So that, you know, the inverse of jobs and local businesses, which we just looked at, payroll employment, is um, the, the supply of available workers as measured by unemployed workers that are out there in the market. And, and you know, you'd expect this to be a complete inverse of that first graph we saw, right? Here's that V, the, the huge drop in COVID losses. We see the inverse of the V here with um, the huge run up and an increase in unemployed workers. Um, Central Oregon had, you know, once again, one of the hardest hit, saw the, the largest increases in unemployed workers, just bananas once again. Uh, the, everything about the pandemic was unprecedented. Um, and and uh, But as quickly as those jobs or those unemployed workers surged into our local labor pool, we saw a dramatic reduction in that, in that supply of unemployed workers as businesses really recovered quickly. They, you know, once there were no longer restrictions in place, workers felt comfortable, they went back to work. As Josh said, you know, where we're sitting today, there are no longer people sitting on the sidelines. Um, we're at record employment um, uh, as far as the labor market goes. Uh, employment in local businesses, like we just looked at a second ago, is fully recovered in Central Oregon, not far behind in the other regions. And here we have the supply of, of unemployed workers uh, is actually, there's actually fewer unemployed today in Klamath and Lake than there was before the pandemic. So a lower supply of workers uh, who are unemployed, really, really close, basically exactly where it was before the pandemic for uh, the Columbia Gorge counties. And Central Oregon uh, just has a marginally higher number of unemployed workers. However, the labor force is significantly larger. So as a share of the labor force, our unemployment rate is, for all intents and purposes, back to the lowest we've ever seen on record. Um, so very, very tight labor market as measured by um, unemployed workers. If we're actually sort of looking at a county-specific number of like, well, how many unemployed people are out there today relative to what it was before the pandemic, um, you can see, I mean, we're just talking about a handful of excess unemployed workers in some of these counties. Very, it's, you know, there's not a glut of workers out there anymore who are sitting on the sidelines. Um, Deschutes County is the biggest bar here, you know, around 350 more unemployed workers uh, from before the pandemic. That's, you know, a drop in the hat uh, in, a, in, a, in a county the size of Deschutes is. So not very many unemployed folks out there any longer because they went back to work. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they didn't disappear. Um, the ones that didn't go back to work are the, those retirees that Josh was alluding to earlier. So when we keep hearing people talk about over and over again, this question of, well, where are the workers go? And Josh even mentioned it himself. You know, th this is a question I get every single day. Um, where do the workers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're adding all these jobs, but where do the workers go? And it's like, well, you just answered the question. We're adding all these jobs. The workers went back to work. Um, so there's a feeling in everyone's gut today of like something still feels off here where, you know, we were at record low unemployment in 2020 before the pandemic started, and it didn't feel this tight, this weird in the labor market. It wasn't this hard to find workers. So what's different today? 
If we know the supply is pretty comparable to what it was before the pandemic started, the other side we have to look at is the demand side of the equation. And that is what is really different today and why the labor market feels so tight. Um, so this is, you know, we measure demand in the labor market um, by looking at monthly job ads, sort of our, our best proxy for what hiring is going to look like in the future or what businesses are trying to hire. So if we're looking at the, these job ads indexed uh, going back to 2016, this is a 12 month moving average to make it a little bit smoother and take the seasonality out of it. Um, you can see Central Oregon in particular stands out like a sore thumb. We've never seen hiring demand this high in Central Oregon, far in excess of what we were seeing in 2019 and early 2020, even higher than when we were at peak um, employment growth coming out of the sort of uh, in the beginning of the last expansion, 2015, 2016. We have even more demand than then, and the supply of labor is way lower than it was back in 2015, 2016. Um, even though it's a little bit more muted, we still see dramatically higher levels of labor demand in both Klamath and Lake and in the Columbia Gorge counties compared to what it was before the pandemic began. So when we put all of that together, the best way to sort of quantify the conditions in the labor market is to look at the share of unemployed workers out there per job ad. So to think of it this way, like if you're a business who has a job ad, you know, on average, how many unemployed workers can you expect would apply for your job? Now, totally on average, not you're not going to get 2.2 workers, whatever the decimal point is here. But, you know, it gives you sort of an idea that the bigger the number, the easier it should be to find workers because there's more unemployed workers per job ad. The smaller the number, the tighter the labor market. And you can see going back, and this is all seasonally adjusted, going back to January of 2020, so right before the pandemic started, the labor market was pretty dang tight for us. Uh, Columbia Gorge, uh, around two unemployed per job ad, same in Central Oregon. That's not a that's not a, a you know an abundant supply of workers for businesses to hire from. Uh, it was a little bit looser in Klamath and Lake, where there was around four unemployed workers per job ad. But now look where we're at today, as of June, as of last month considerably, considerably tighter uh, ratios here uh, as far as unemployed workers per job ad, uh, closer to one to one. So on average, if you're in you know, the Columbia Gorge counties or Central Oregon, you have a job ad out there, you might on average have one unemployed worker who might apply for your job ad that you have out there. That is a really tight labor market for us. Um, nationally, this ratio tends to always be lower than what it is for our counties in East Cascades because of the seasonality in our economy. For us to be matching the national average for this is incredibly unusual. So um, this is this sort of affirms the fact that we have a very tight labor market today, and even the the two to one ratio in uh, in Klamath and Lake is abnormally low for for them as well. And like I said, the anomaly here is not the low supply of workers, which we've seen before, which was back in 2019, 2020. The anomaly here is the incredibly high demand for labor that still exists. And Damon, this does not account for skills. So it's not, it's just one human body per yeah. opening. So it could be that they don't even have any of the skills needed. For yeah, they're all, yeah, they're, that doesn't even get to like matching work workers to jobs or anything like that, just warm bodies. Yeah. So the good news though, uh, early on when we had such a tight labor market was it drove wage growth up uh, remarkably. I mean, this is um, I, this is the statewide uh, payroll growth uh, that we saw. You can go to the far right of this graph. The blue lines represent sort of nominal wage gains year over year. The, the orange bars are real wage gains after you adjust for inflation. You can see sort of before the pandemic, we were seeing somewhere around, you know, three to five percent annualized growth in uh, in wages. 
we were running at around 2% inflation, which meant that uh, real wage gains for Oregon workers before the pandemic sort of hovered in the one and a half to 2% range was normal for workers on average to see. Um, I cut out a bunch of quarters here at the, the right-hand side of the graph because of composition issues. Uh, I don't have really time to get into that except for saying that um, we saw a lot of low-wage workers lose jobs in the pandemic, um, which the way an average works, if you cut out a lot of low-wage workers uh, uh, in the equation, it actually inflates the average wage, makes wages look like they rose, but really you just deleted the low-wage jobs. And the inverse is true when we hired those workers back, when low-wage workers came back into the labor market, um, when COVID restrictions went away, uh, it, it made it look like the average wage declined, when in reality, we're just hiring back low-wage workers who lost jobs. So anyways, that's cut out. But we start feeling more comfortable when we get to the, the, uh, the tail end of 2021 here, where we see almost a 10% nominal growth in wages uh, for Oregon, Oregon workers, payroll wages, uh, year over year. Huge, huge number there. Inflation was running um, uh, pretty hot by the end of 2021, so that actually took a pretty bite, a pretty big bite out of those um, those wage gains. So it actually meant a real wage gain of only about 4.2 percent, which is still good. That's actually great um, from a historical perspective. We move in. We we don't yet have the first quarter published of 2022. We just have the fourth quarter of 2021. You can see nominal wages came down to 6.1 percent, but with inflation running even hotter at the end of the year. It actually led to real wage losses for Oregon workers, which Josh alluded to a little bit in his talk. Um, I know for certain that the nominal wage gains um, decreased even more in the first quarter of 2022. And on top of that, inflation was running even hotter when we got there. So once again, as we move further into 2022, the wage gains have been turning into real wage losses for Oregon workers, which is um, pretty devastating um, uh, to a lot of households right now. Uh, so really quickly, Josh hit a lot of expectations for the future. What I'm seeing right now is, uh, you know, this labor crunch that we're experiencing is not going away anytime soon. The demand for labor remains high. We're not going to be increasing our supply anytime soon. It's really difficult to attract workers to come to our region right now because of housing affordability issues. Josh already touched on that. So our normal bread and butter of in-migration is, is, uh, is not something that's going to be a, a solution in the short term. Um, on the margins, we could do things like pulling in young workers who might be sitting on the sidelines. Um, we've seen that seen that happen a little bit, um, where um, labor force participation rate from young people is um, amongst the highest we've seen in the last 20 years, a, a reversal of a long-term trend of that declining. So, so we can pull in on the margins some workers here and there, but um, the supply is the supply we have. Um, and with boomers retiring, it, it exacerbates that issue. Um, the good news, is that the demand destruction that Josh was alluding to with things becoming more uh, expensive, us all pulling back on spending, the Federal Reserve increasing rates of borrowing, all of that is going to eventually translate to labor market stuff. And that labor market stuff is that if we're all pulling back on buying things, that means that the businesses that have all these job ads are not going to be needing to hire all those workers at the level that they have today. So we're going to see, um, we should soon, I think we've tipped over and seen the curve curl over now, we're going to start to see the demand for labor start to decrease quite dramatically. That doesn't mean job losses necessarily. It just means there's going to be less demand for workers. We're already at record low unemployment, so less demand doesn't mean 
job losses. Uh, it might make it a little bit easier to find a worker, though, here in the next you know nine to twelve months um, as those two get closer to equilibrium. There, um, so you, you don't normally want to hear an economist being like, "Yeah, demand destruction is great," um, but both from Josh per, Josh's perspective talking about inflation and my perspective on how tight the labor market is. In both instances, the demand destruction is really essential right now. The question is, can we can we balance a fine line between lowering demand enough but not leading to recession? And that's well above my pay grade to know if that's the answer or where we're going to land on that one. But um, a little bit less demand is actually a good thing today. Uh, with that, nine to twelve months. Say what? And you're thinking nine to twelve months horizon on that. I think I think we're going to start to see real noticeable improvement on the labor market conditions, like by by even fall, perhaps like businesses will start to feel it being a little bit less crazy. Um, uh, maybe not for those businesses that remain like the lowest paying occupations that are trying to fill, um, but anyone sort of above that, it, sh it should start to ease up a little bit here. And the seasonality bump helps as well. You know, we have a highly seasonal economy in the East Cascades. Uh, summer is peak uh, peak employment, and so. The, the benefit to workers is it might create more employment opportunities for them uh, during the, the off season. So we'll have less unemployment uh, than we normally would have. And, uh, but it would also mean that those businesses have sort of more workers to work with. So uh, all in all, I think, you know, it, we should see some modest improvement here shortly. Any other questions for me? Yeah, who's got questions? Ron, that's a really great question. Are you seeing that? fuel costs as far as inflation's contribution? Absolutely. Um, normally, normally, energy costs more broadly, gas being the biggest component of that is about 7% of the CPI bundle. So like 7% of what we spend our money on goes to gas. Uh, and obviously with the run up to five and a half dollars a gallon was a huge contributing factor. The, the inflation numbers for June um, were basically a full percentage point. So that means on an annualized basis, what happened in June happened 12 months in a row over the course of a year, we'd have over 12% inflation, actually 17% inflation total. Uh, so it's a huge impact. Now that's all reversing or partially reversing. And so we're going to get an, at some point, we're going to get a negative inflation report where the prices from one month to another decline. But it's going to be due to that volatile food and energy component, most likely. It's kind of that underlying underlying inflation that's the real concern uh and that's that's going to be harder to get back to two percent even as gas prices will start subtracting um uh, a bit here in the months ahead yeah and if i'm not mistaken i think uh the of of the nine percent inflation that we saw uh i think some somewhere on a third of that that inflation over the last year was contributed to sort of uh, energy costs generally so i mean that's a, a huge contribution there there's some research, if I recall correctly, it's been some time since then, um, that the, the oil shock we got in 07, 08 uh, would explain about 25% of the recession we experienced uh, at the time. So it would have been enough to drive us into recession, a mild one from the oil shock. And then the financial crisis was a totally different thing that just happened to come after the oil shock. The price of fuel gets embedded into all the other prices uh, in terms of the final consumer prices because you got to pay more to get it to the store so you got to charge the consumers more to 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 account for that so i want to say it's like a 10 percent increase in the price of oil in, in terms of the barrelage uh can result in a 0.1 percent increase in the price of overall inflation so it, it's not a one-for-one -one relationship but it's like it, but again that's because that that energy cost is is seven percent of the overall consumption so so it's it's very real and it's going to stick with us for a while 
even as gas prices start to decline, it's not like um, Target and Walmart are only going to start cutting their costs because they're over inventoried right now, not because the prices of the pump are starting to fall a little bit. Do you think that's true of supplies for like the construction industry too, Josh? Like once they get that premium price, it's going to be hard to get them back down? Or? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and so there's a difference here between inflation, which is the increase and in, the ongoing increases in the cost of things versus the price level, which is the absolute number, right? I don't know. We're starting to get commodities come down. China's been in recession. China's being in recession has starting to plunge the prices of all commodities, copper and, and aluminum and timber and all sorts of stuff. And so that's an actual decline in the price level, which is deflation, which is negative inflation, the decline in prices. So we're seeing some of that. That's going to feed through into the um, materials cost of production for firms in the, in the second half of this year. Um, but there's also a difference between we might not get a ton of price declines at those final consumer prices. We're just going to get them to kind of peter out, right? You know, used car prices went up 50%. Are they going to fall back down 50%? No, they might fall down 5%, but just kind of stagnate or whatever, like that, that sort of dynamic. Um, so the difference there between the actual price level you have to pay not continue to increase means inflation is close to zero. I think that's going to be more the dynamic we see, but with some very specific markets, we'll see, we'll see declines given other things happening in the economy. else have questions on any industry perspectives on the information that you heard? Yeah, I think from a positioning standpoint on the on the construction side of things, and more specific to, um, you know, we've got office in Portland and Central Oregon, and the backlog right now, and I'm sure others would echo this. You see me the other way? We, um, we've got enough backlog, I think, to carry us through for, you know, nine to 12 months. You know, so in terms of layoffs and, and other repercussions from things, you know, and, and to, to Josh's point about things leveling off, we've seen that, you know, where, you know, we, we watch the commodities markets regularly to see, to try to predict what is going to happen in six months. And, you know, steel, copper, all those things have, have dropped. We've seen bits and pieces of that. The most dramatic one was certainly lumber, which really follows a more real-time curve. Um, you know, it goes up, the the consumer price goes up, it goes down. Consumers can see that relatively quickly. Other prices in copper and and you know steel that is is manufactured into cars or doors or other things takes a little bit longer to filter back through on the consumer side. But we we have we have started to definitely see the cost increase curve flatten, and in some cases it's it's gone down. Um, in the case of lumber, it's like forty percent in the last few months. Even I think it peaked in March, and and today, you know, if we price the same project just on the lumber side, it's probably down that much, and we can we can purchase it for forty percent less. Um, so I think you know the the combination of the backlog and and the flattening currently are good signs. There's a lot of institutional money on the sidelines waiting to be deployed, and so I think the 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 market stability will help some of that money deploy. 
um, and the housing shortage is not going away. So, you know, we're expecting to continue to see um, projects getting built. It may be the, the pace may slow, but again, to the relationship of labor to jobs and to the, to Damon's point, we, we just expect that there, the, the labor demand will decrease, but the, the activity will still be relatively similar to what it's been for the past year or so. So Gary, like you'll, you'll still, you'll keep everybody and you just maybe don't need to hire as many more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that's my sense anyway. And that's just an opinion of, of what we see, but that, you know, people will just catch their breath more or less. And, you know, what we've seen over the past couple of years is the labor force particularly on the construction side, has just gotten spread out, right? If, if an electric electrical contractor has 10 people, instead of sending two or three to every job, they're spending, they're sending, sending. half a person or something. It's, it's, uh, it's just so projects have taken longer, they get completed and things like that. But we, we hope to kind of get back on track with actual numbers to be productive and efficient, so. Mike, did you want to add something? Yeah, um, thanks very much for that. Um, that's very, very helpful for those of us in the trenches. Uh, just make a couple of comments. Number one about Hood River, yeah, um, the timing was pretty bad too uh, in the shutdown right at the beginning of the seasonal hiring boom. So that's very difficult to recover from because obviously people are rational and they go elsewhere and then they can't be replaced quickly. Uh, the other thing about Hood River is the housing crisis that Josh talked about quite a bit is very significant. So that delays the opportunity to rehire people because there's a huge shortage of housing across the board. You know, uh, certainly in the affordability index, it's extremely low and that's caused by multiple, you know, multi-generational factors here. So nothing terribly interesting there, but that's definitely the Hood River comment. The other thing I'd like to comment on is the general employment issues. And that is, you know, I think I agree completely with what Gary said, and that people will be more careful about the hiring and firing of folks. You know, we've we've always appreciated how difficult it is to hire people, particularly for us in the Columbia Gorge. So, you know, we do not consider them to be a warm body. They're ultimately a highly trained, highly compensated and highly skilled employee. Or after we get rid of them, they are anyway. Um I think the one thing I wanted to comment to, and Heather, you'd mentioned kind of the boogie word of automation and just make a couple of comments on that if I could. Um, so given the economic overlay and the labor shortage issues, you know, most people who are running businesses like mine have got to be rational and they got to figure out, well, what can I do? You know, how can I get around this issue? And, and you know, it, it has been going on for some time, as Josh alluded to, it's been going on for several years. And we've certainly had some special cause scenarios with COVID, but it was difficult to hire somebody for the last three years. It's just bloody difficult now. Doesn't change things that much. So how do people behave rationally? You automate things. And that is not a bad thing. You automate and leverage. And, you know, people say negative things about automation. And I think, you know, if you listen to Elon Musk and if you look at the demographic data, independent of whether people can move here from Tucson, Arizona to the Northwest to Oregon, you know, we have an ongoing population shrinkage and we don't have a shortage of demand for goods and services, not that we can see right now. So we have to automate. 
And the good news is, I'll just say, in my company, we've automated and we've spent quite a bit of capital on equipment. And what has that done? Well, it's it's leveraged. We can get more work done with the same employee hour. But also, point I'd really like to make is that the job itself is a lot more pleasant, a lot more pleasant. You know, you take away the really horrible grunt job. So people fear automation and talk about it like it's the boogeyman and it's the new version of, you know, for my generation was Japan and then for my kids' generation with China, losses of jobs. Now that the new thing is going to be losses of jobs, automation, a lot of those jobs should be lost. A lot of those jobs are bloody horrible. A lot of those jobs are disgusting and should go away and a robot should do them. And so the next time you go into Burger King and you find some robot is flipping your burgers, I think that's a good thing because flipping burgers in Burger King isn't a very pleasant job. So I, I think that's a really good optimistic perspective. The automation will improve jobs and will give people jobs that are much more fulfilling than a lot of the jobs they see today. We purchased a large ply cutter and it replaced everybody cutting out plies at the factory. And it, you know, we do it now in an hour, what used to take, you know, everybody a certain amount of time to do. The quality is better. And it's a it's a repetitive task that nobody does anymore. So, you know, I feel really good about that. So I think automation is going to be an absolute necessity. It's going to be the solution for this problem. People talk about software that may or may not help. Let's face it, to be frank, most of the software that we interact with these days is pretty shitty and has got a long way to go. But a lot of the automation that we're going to see over the next few years is going to make the world a lot better place for a lot of people. And uh, I firmly believe that. And that's, that's my last comment. And, and we had to do that. I know most of the people I knew had to do that. So I'll shut up now. No, don't shut up because I have a follow on for you because I think you do you I really enjoy talking to you because you always do your research. So um, I trust what you say. It does seem too like the skill set will be different that you need. So there's potential for increased wages. And maybe that's for all three of you. But um, it just seems like it's going to create new jobs, too, that are um, repairing all the automation and you know. uh, yeah, I just gave a guy a raise today when I hired him from Rose Hours where he was stacking shelves. He was making 15 bucks an hour and he had to work the weekends and it impacted his life with his family. Um, I now pay him $30 an hour and he runs a CNC machine. And that's been over the last four or five years. So he makes roughly double what he's made. He's a much more skilled worker. And the leverage of his time is vastly greater than it was before stacking shelves. So I think he feels really good about what he does on a day to day basis, which is important. Um, not to be overly holistic, but that's the one predictor of male happiness is do you find your work meaningful? And I'm pretty sure that he finds his work a lot more meaningful than when he was stacking shelves. So I feel good about that. I'll just chime in. We need more of everything Mike's just talking about. Uh, it, business investment has been lackluster. It's really been slowed down for the last 20 years at this point productivity in the overall U.S. economy. So that efficiency, that how much you're getting out of your every hour of labor used um, has been increasing, but it's been increasing at a very slow pace. And so uh, with the demographic crunch that I know Damon and I touched on and Mike's talking about, uh, you know, absolutely, we're going to need better productivity. The benefit there would be, yes, you can get higher wages and um, with better productivity, that's going to help with longer term inflation concerns as well. And so so it's, again, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but this this type of business investment and increase in gains um, would be hugely beneficial for the economy. It's something we we've needed for 20 years now. So to the extent that we can get any more of it, that, that it's all it's all better.
there's a, a funny dynamic of two forces pulling against each other, though, which is like the tight labor market is incentivizing businesses to want to make these investments. Uh, but at the same time, it's becoming increasingly more expensive to make those investments because the rate of borrowing is higher. So uh, we'll see which one of those wins out here, uh, the, the struggle for workers or uh, the cost of borrowing. But uh, they're headbutting right now. Yeah, I, that's a really excellent point. But the reality of the United States economy is that 96% of people work for small employers who are less than 10 employees. So those companies don't really have a choice. They will they will buckle down and they will get the equipment, they will get the money, and they will find a way to continue to go forward because if they don't, they'll die. Um, you know, IBM might be able to talk about the business model change for 20 years and how they're changing, but the small companies can't talk about something for, for you know, 10 months they want to change. So I think a lot of people, I certainly, the people I know in, in the river and the gorge, you know, in the manufacturing sector, so as a small section of the economy have invested heavily in equipment to leverage their ability to manufacture quality product at a competitive price. Um, the only other last thing I'd say before I belt up is um, I think what we're going to see on the macroeconomic level is a uh, movement towards localization and away from globalization. If you look at the macroeconomic, so certainly the geopolitical situation, you'll see that there's going to be a, an ongoing trend. A lot of people talk about it and give it lip service, but it's starting to become a little bit more real, uh, by which I mean that you can buy goods and services from China, except, oh, wait, my cargo ship didn't come in last month. Now I no longer have the faith and confidence that I can do that. Hey, I love the prices I get and the quality is okay. I can bear with it, but the prices are fantastic. Did I mention how good the prices are? You know, But if they don't come, it doesn't matter. So people are going to start to look at uh, localizing as many aspects of the economy as they can. And obviously that includes agriculture. Um, and construction materials, but also a lot of manufacturing will be, you know, what they call re-onboarded or reshored. you know. So we'll see. I think that trend will continue, particularly if the geopolitical situation remains strained, both in Ukraine and in China. Thank you. Ron, you had something more to add around automation? Ron Tolan? You know what? Are you muted, maybe? Okay, did that work? Yep, it did. Okay. Um, automation is something that's been a, a, an oncoming thing since for generations, since I was in school, really. The, uh, but the, it's been a, a major increase in it in, the, for instance, the trucking industry. Uh, our computer, our trucks are running on computers and sensors nowadays. Uh, my concern, of course, it always comes up in discussion about the automated, the autonomous trucking and stuff like that. My concern is they're all run on sensors. It has to be. Uh, our biggest problem with where we have so many sensors and systems on these trucks now that they are physically good for a million miles. However, the electronic side of it has quadrupled or more our maintenance costs because we can't keep the sensors working. And if we can't keep a sensor working on a manned truck, and then we send an automated truck out with nobody in control of it, except those sensors that fail, I'm concerned. On a non-safety, on something that has less safety involved in it, then that's a different deal altogether. It's a simpler process. But... Uh, but that's my concern about the 
autonomous trucks and the, the stuff like that that's coming down the pike, even though they're in development now. Well, and the need for um, truck drivers is so great right now. That is our number one um, training scholarship that we do through our WorkSource partners are for truck drivers. It's for the CDL. So um, that issue isn't going away anytime soon, um, to, to Ron's point. I um, am not very smart about economics or these kinds of statistics. So I just want to thank you both for making this um, into bite-sized chunks for us to really understand and look at. And I will be sending out these presentations. Hey, Tony to all of you. So if you do have follow-up, their emails will be on the presentations. I'll make sure to get this out today. Wow, and that's a lot to take in. I know, I'm a little overwhelmed and they're fast talkers, so. Yeah, good. Well, they're paying a lot in there, so that's great. And then I wonder if we could quickly, Jake, could you introduce yourself? Jake is um, also a new resource for us to all access. Hi, uh, I'm Jake. I'm. Uh, the workforce analyst for the East Cascades region. Yeah, I specialize in the labor economy and uh, I like giving information. So any kind of industry reports, any kind of um, workforce data, you can reach out to Jake as well. Maybe you could put your email in the chat and then Bambi, you're waving your hand. Did you have something to add? Thank you. Thank you, Heather. And Jake, I do have a request. At least it bears some thought. I know it's difficult to get data about um, that population of people who experience disabilities. And yet what little bit of data we look at um, tells us that as with every other piece of the labor markets kind of shifted now, I mean, we saw that in this data. And so I'm curious about the labor market and changes for or to people who experience disabilities. If you ever have an opportunity to get that kind of data, that would be fabulous. And I'll just say briefly that um, the ability for hybrid work has changed a lot of opportunities for workers with disabilities. I can't say anything concrete other than that right now, but I'll put something together. Thank you, it has. We've seen just a little bit of that. And so if we can, like in the data, if we can see more. So I think that's great value for employers um, to really consider, let alone the people we help become employed. Thanks, Amy. Say hi to everybody. Ron uh, Trollin and Bob Morrow, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's great to see everybody. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. And just for more context, uh, Commissioner DeBone is in Deschutes County, and he has just recently, thank you very much, been elected as our chief local elected official. So he appoints all new board members, and I really appreciate that shout out. We're so happy to have them on board. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Marta. Thanks, Bye, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Work Chatter. Did we help answer your questions? Are there topics you'd like for us to explore? Do you know of someone who should be a guest on this podcast? Reach out by clicking the link in the bio.